for a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, the old before the dark times. Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, we discussed the Great Hyperspace War, made some connections, and got an art history minor from Palpatine's office. Now, we talk retcons, another thousand-year time gap, and then we finally get to the original Tales of the Jedi run, which kicks off the Great Sith War, and we can almost see Knights of the Old Republic on the horizon. Friends, this is where the fun begins. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a little bit of truth in legends. Hello, I'm Kelsey, and before we get into the timeline, we're going to talk a bit about a blog post on canon by Star, sometimes Star Wars novelist Chuck Wendig. Um, the post is Star Wars, A Modest Proposal. It's at his blog, TerribleMinds.com. And um, you know, I read a little excerpt of it, but then the gist is that he proposes um, – changing how Star Wars canon is structured to create a Star Wars cinematic universe. Um, And so let me quote. The Star Wars cinematic universe does exist already. It's just that nothing else really exists beside it. All are part of it. What I mean is, at present, the Star Wars universe is driven explicitly by the films. The films, understandably, set the course for the rest of it. In this great web, the films are less a part of the web and more the spider making it. I can speak from experience writing the books and the comics and that all the narrative work that goes into the Star Wars universe is effectively happening in the wake of the films. They can't get ahead of the movies. They can't contradict the movies. They can't deal with material that might one day be dealt with in film. They can only be additive to the cinematic experience, not really separate from it. End quote. Um, and so his post is longer. It goes about making, um, finishing out the the Skywalker trilogy of trilogies and then having sort of a separate film canon um, reviving the Star Wars Legends brand, which is where they put all of the stuff that used to be under Expanded Universe. And there's a lot in there about why he found it frustrating to have to work around the movies um, or what other interesting stories you could tell or how you could have different stories telling different things about the same set of characters um, and the freedom you get with that. Um, And here at the People's History of the Old Republic, we've already spent some time talking about about how canon is structured, not just what stories were in canon that might be brought back into canon, but this sort of kind of concept of like, I think the term we've been using is like a layered canon, where the film is the most canon and then Below that is the television shows, but not the, like, uh, 2D animated one, the, like, 3D Clone Wars and Resistance and Rebels. Um, And then below that, you get to other material. And so the Disney, in its stewardship of Star Wars, keeps things kind of hierarchical, um, built around the film. But Chuck Wendig isn't wrong when he says that all of this is sort of tied into how film canon works and serves the needs of film canon and anything that doesn't is um, treated as being less relevant than film canon, but there's not like a good separation. There's not a clean line um, between the cinematic universe 
and the other stuff. And Chuck Wendig points to the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as distinct from Marvel Comics, as distinct from other Marvel properties, which sometimes reference each other. Sometimes one spills into the other, but they're sort of separate canons built around the same core idea. Um, and so I think it's an interesting one out there for, for people interested in canon, which if you're listening to this, I assume you must be. Um, but uh, before we before we move on to, to our story today, I wonder, um, Luke, what are your what are your thoughts on on Wendig's proposal? Right, and you know I I I, I understand what what Chuck is is getting at, and um, I, I get I mean I get what he's saying, and and I really do understand why a lot of uh, fans, uh, and especially a lot of writers who wrote a lot in the old Star Wars Legends, might be annoyed that the Legends universe is now considered "quote unquote" not canon. Um, and, and I get that. The, the way that you know, the, the way that I look at it, and the way that I understand it, is that you know, in order to do a cohesive canon and make it even somewhat understandable for people for for general people not not those of us not 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 people who are likely to listen to a podcast like this not people who you know have played Knights of the Old Republic who read all of the new Jedi order novels stuff like that you know but people just generally to connect the movies and they might watch the TV shows and they might pick up one of the books at an airport bookstore, but um, I think they had to wipe what what came before for the most part because it was really it was convoluted as you can tell here because we have to go through and explain and talk about these things and explain them and we've already had to make corrections and things like that and this is just a podcast that we're doing because we really enjoy Star Wars. Um. So when you create a new canon, you you want to unify it and make it streamlined for everyone. Yeah, and I think. Um, but oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, but but at the same time, I, I understand why people are frustrated because these are the stories that they grew up with, and I grew up with them too. I, I love these stories, you know, the ones that are truly great, the ones that are good, and and the ones that are that are bad. I, you know, I really enjoy them, you know, because you know, it's so good, it's bad, things like that. Um, and you know, nostalgia for some of them as well. That's that definitely plays a part. I, you know, I just when I read through it. I had a few questions and I mean, you know, I don't expect, I don't expect Chuck Wendig to answer this, you know, by any means, but these are just the questions that I have. A couple of them are feasibility questions and a couple of them are, uh, I guess more uh, meta questions. <clears throat> Realistically, why would you do it? Like, I mean, you know, you've already done one, um, controversial canon reboot why would you do another one and then on top of that not that i really care about disney as a company because i don't at all um 
but why would Disney do it? You know, if, I, if I'm thinking logistically through it, why would they? And if he's just talking, you know, this is what I want or this is what I think would work, then that, you know, if it's an academic thing, then that's great. You know, I come, I went to law school, you know, all, all of our, our, a lot of our writing is academic. You know, we're just thinking out theory, dumb theories and saying what, you know, saying what we like. So I, I get that. Um, the other question, and I mean, I guess Kelsey, you know, we can kind of bounce this off one another. The first question is, how is this to me, how is this any different from any other connected writing universe or connected, um, franchise? So my example would be the Lord of the Rings. Um, yes, the Lord of the Rings movies came out. And uh, some people didn't enjoy them. A lot of people, I think a lot more people did. I enjoyed them. Um, But, you know, people, a lot of people always look back and say, you know, yes, those movies were enjoyable. But the books, you know, the books are what that's the that's the Bible. And these are just some other things that we enjoy. The the movies just kind of portray it. Um, And so I I guess I have trouble understanding, you know, how that's different. And, and then, you know, you talk about the MCU, but the MCU, these movies are blockbusters and people don't have any trouble associating the fact that Thor in the movies is uh, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth. And in the comics for most of the time, these movies have been out has been Jane Foster, his, his longtime love interest. You know, I mean that, so I, you know, I don't, I, I, I understand it, but at the same time, I kind of don't, does, does that make sense? Yeah. So I think, um, I really want to get, we have, we have actual, actual story to discuss. So I don't want to um, spend too much time on this little tangent. I just think it's really Interesting. Um, and what we might be seeing is sort of a um, external expression of internal frustrations with what does it take to write for Star Wars? How does that shape someone who's like, I have this story I want to tell in the Star Wars universe. And then you have to go through the official channels um, to do it because uh, they're uh, somewhat litigious and it's hard to tell outside anyway, unless you're doing like fan fiction. Um, so there might be, so there's some like constraints there and I can see that filtering down. Like the company's like, we want this here so that, or we want to leave this out or leave this untold so that you don't have to worry about it. Um, or our screenwriters don't have to worry about it as they're making the film canon. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think the other part that was really interesting is the idea that you sort of freeze in time, a, a cinematic canon after, um, episode nine comes out. And so then you have your nine most canon um, movies, um, the, the trilogy there, and then you the Skywalker saga. And then you go down level and you have like your Star Wars stories, which could play in that, but won't supersede that. Um, and I think Disney is actively, um, if not by name, curating different levels of canon. Um, and I think it might be handy for people who want like a like, I just want to know that if I'm reading a book and then I see that something that happened in the book isn't in the movie, that that was like a choice and not an accident. Um, and I think that's probably how it's going to be. Um, there's uh, there's just a lot of material out there. Um, but it, it speaks to, I think, the, the importance of 
canon and what gets out there and what doesn't. Um, that Disney has taken an interest in the canon enough to enough to formally structure it, and then um, also to uh, to tease bits of the past as we've seen um, in I think most explicitly in the uh, was that the the Crimson Sun Trophy Room in Solo, uh, but other places too. Um, and I think it's a neat thing. Um, feel free to read read. Uh, Chuck Wendig's post again. That's it's Star Wars: A Modest Proposal at TerribleMinds.com. And uh, if you have thoughts on it, uh, let us know. We are here talking canon. Yeah, um, you know, I just i i, I wanted I, I wanted to respond um, briefly because um, you know I agree, and Star Wars absolutely does, or I'm sorry, Disney does absolutely, you know. Uh, create levels of canon. Now they're not the same ones that they had in the past where some things that were written in Star Wars previously, you know, if um, George Lucas or the story group uh, decided they didn't really care for it, they could just kind of throw it out as long as it wasn't a certain level of author or a movie or something like that. But I mean, there is obviously a canon and I mean, this is something, there's definitely there's definitely um a hierarchy and you know it's something that we should make clear you know the movies take precedence over everything and then just slightly below that you know like 1a and then you know maybe you know 1b or you know just as close as you can possibly be with two are the tv shows and then below that it's comics books video games um and things of that, you know, those types of things. And then below that, it's, it's reference books. Um, you know, the essential, the essential guides, the, you know, the last Jedi visual dictionary, the solo visual dictionary to mention things like that. Um, and basically what they've always taken that to mean, as far as I can tell is that, you know, they could have written something in a reference book that's, that's canon right now, and they might go back and change it later. And, that just happens sometimes because they decide they want to use a story element and that's just what it is. And that's always going to happen in Canon. It, it always has. It's happened throughout history. Um, uh, uh, not George R. R. Martin, sorry. Uh, J.R. Tolkien changed the, um, you know, the premise of the Hobbit to fit in with the Lord of the Rings and how he wanted the one ring to be symbolized after he had already written the Hobbit. You know, it's, these things, you know, they've happened. And I'm not saying that Disney's actions are on the same level as, you know, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but people change canon is what I'm saying. It happens throughout history. So, and the other thing I wanted to say is um, uh, this should in no way be taken as an indictment of uh, Chuck Wendig uh, because he was uh, done very wrong uh, by Disney. They shouldn't have let him go the way that they did. And that was very not cool. So, just also wanted to throw that in there at the uh, at the end, Absolutely. but uh, yeah, Kelsey brought this to my attention, and uh, I'm glad he did because yeah, it's a good topic for the show. Oh, absolutely, and um, yeah, solidarity with all writers beset by uh, bands of jerks. Um, so, 
And so, well, I guess my last last thing on the, on the canon bit, right, is that Disney also um, like inherited the canon, right? Disney inherited mm-hmm. six movies of um, varying quality and a range of other properties out there when it um, when it bought Star Wars, and so they had to make a choice immediately about canon. Were they gonna mm-hmm. was all of it gonna be part of it? Was some of it gonna be part of it? And um, they focused on the movies, I think, because that's largely how people have experienced it, too. Um, I don't mm-hmm. have numbers. The numbers might exist. But I would guess that the um, the overwhelming, by orders of magnitude, perhaps, exposure people have had to Star Wars has been through movies first and possibly only. And then there's some sub- subset of people exposed to it that way who have this other material they bring in. And so it makes sense why they're doing it that way and why they're shepherding canon as they are. Um, but that said, let's talk about one of those mm-hmm. stories that well, was created before. Go ahead, Luke. Kelsey, you know, the, this is just, this is really anecdotal, but it, it reinforces the point that you're trying to make, you know, um, the Star Wars fans that that we are making this podcast for, and I mean, we're, we're making it for anyone who wants to listen, you know, obviously anybody who's interested, but the people who, you know, are really going to be interested in this are, are still an, a niche part of the Star Wars community of the Star Wars fandom. The people who kept up with all of this stuff. And to illustrate that, my parents named me after Luke Skywalker. You know, like they showed me these movies. They showed me the original trilogy. Like when I was far, probably far too young to be like watching, you know, I was like two, three, four, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, like Luke, I am, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I am your father. And, you know, his arm gets, his hand gets cut off, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, and then, and, you know, they, they named me after that character. They, I was raised to love Star Wars literally by my parents and they have, neither one of them have ever, ever picked up an expanded universe novel comic or watched any of the shows ever like i mean you know but they they loved it enough to name their firstborn child after one of the characters but you know like i mean so it's anecdotal obviously and we don't have percentages but at the same time it you know it, it reinforces what kelsey's saying that it's you know it's still a minority of the star wars population and, and people who really enjoy star wars so it's it's just something to think about there Oh, indeed. Um, so now that we've talked about how this is such a little known <laughs> canon and history, let's dive right in um, to to the meat of this podcast, which is the stories from the past as best we know them, as best presented, um, that may end up being referenced or borrowed from for new canon. And we're going to start today um, with the Lost Tribe of the Sith which takes place 5,000 years before the Battle of Yavin up to 4,975 years. Um, there's later stories, multiple comics and books. Um, the four covered here, Precipice, Skyborn, Paragon, and Savior, were all written by John Jax Miller and published in 2009 and 2010. Yeah, the the Lost Tribe of the Sith were introduced as part of the Abeloth storyline, which takes place... Uh, between 41 and 43 ABY in the Fate of the Jedi series of novels. They, that was uh, nine books released from 
2009 to 2012. They were retconned as having been a group of surviving Sith, although only a marginal order, who crash-landed on the planet of Kesh um, around the time of Naga Sadao. They were created um, ostensibly because Avaloth needed an army of Sith at her disposal. Uh, their stories outside of the timeline of Avaloth um, and during the Old Republic are scattered and take place at various times, including around 5000 ABY, 3960, 3000, and 2970. Because of their close association with Abahoth, Abahoth, Abeloth, and her likelihood of returning being uh, slim to none, it's highly unlikely that they will be revisited in canon. However, they do provide stories and also show some weird time travel and hyperspace aspects that the EU used to have. Yeah, and so the primary characters um, in this story we'll see are Yaru Corson, Sila Corson, Adari Val. Um, it takes place in Kesh and hyperspace. Um, and the timeline is, again, uh, it's 5,000 to uh, 4975, though um, also revisited later. And these are these are events that are wholly separate from those in the galaxy at large. Um, we don't learn of their existence until the time of Skywalker, of Luke Skywalker. Shortly before the Great Hyperspace War, it begins. The Sith ships Omen and Harbinger have successfully mined lignin crystals, which can increase the force powers of those in their vicinity in preparation for the invasion. However, they are simultaneously attacked by Jedi Strike Force, which at this point was retconned as having interacted with the Sith before the Great Hyperspace War, um, and in the process attempted to flee into hyperspace. The Harbinger uh, was knocked off course by Jedi fire and hit the Omen in hyperspace. The Omen suffered near catastrophic damage, is pushed out of hyperspace to the wild, and is pushed out of hyperspace to the wild space world of Kesh. The Harbinger, meanwhile, is lost in hyperspace and somehow teleported forward in time to around 40 ABY. Its crew will eventually become part of Abelos minions, and uh, for the purposes of of this show. Well, this you know this part, uh, they don't play any any further part in the story. The Omen's captain, Ayaru Corson, is a human. who's a lower caste Sith Lord, but still a slave under uh, Sadao. That's Naga Sadao, who we saw in the Great Hyperspace War, um, attempting to salvage the ship and crew. The Omen crashes on Kesh with some deaths. However, the Masasi on the ship begin to die suddenly from something in the air that only affects quote Red Sith leaving few. Um, later in the night, the group is attacked by a beast that it takes many of them to kill. Starving, they attempt to cook and eat it, but the first taste, but the first to taste it dies instantly. The next day, Yaru ascends to the Omen crash site, scavenges for supplies, and hopes to transmit a distress call. However, his brother, Devor Corson, is already there. Devor wanted to con- control the ship from the beginning and uh, starts a tense battle with his brother. Eventually, after a long duel in which Yaro is injured, he throws his brother Devor down a chasm and to his death. At this point, a Kashiri woman named Adari Val uh, had witnessed this and nearly falls from her mount, her mount which is known as a Yuvak, a flying beast of burden 
used to fly used to fly and cover great distances across the land. Later, Yaru sees Sila, Devor's Sila Corson, Devor's wife, and the father of their newborn child, who knows what has occurred, but neither speak of the action. Yaru tells the group that they must wait for help because they have no means of contacting the outside uh, galaxy. Right, Nadari is on the run from her people from her people who have branded her a heretic for believing in planetary volcanism instead of religious philosophy. Unknown to Adari, she is Force-sensitive, which Yaru senses. Adari investigates the crash of the omen and meets Yaru. The two form a friendship and discuss local issues. Adari, wishing to gain retribution against her people, tells Yaru of a legend known as Skyborn. Skyborn is a religious custom to the Kashari who believe the Skyborn will return to save them from their troubles. Adari convinces Yaru that she poses no threat, leaves, and prepares to act as an emissary for the Sith amongst the Kashiri. She returns a week later with the members of the, of the Kesh priesthood, the Neshtovar, who are awed by Sith technology and their use of the Force to appear as gods. So, just doing the same thing we did on Korriban a few thousand years later. The Sith are hailed as Skyborn and Adari as their chosen champion. Adari finally, a- after this, Adari finally confesses to Yaru that she saw him drop his brother off a cliff to which Yaru explains it was self-defense and that it was self-defense and that the Sith do not consider murder evil. However, in order to keep her secret, Yaru agrees her to, agrees to train her in the force. So then we jump ahead uh, 15 years, the tribe to uh, 4985. The tribe is still stranded. Kesh has little metal, a strange electromagnetic sphere that causes havoc with starships, and little else to repair the ship. And so in the 15 years, Yaru and Sila have married to secure an alliance between the Sith, and they have two children. Adari has been made the ambassador to the Sith and works between them and the Kashari. The Sith are treated as gods, but Sila, who hates the Red Sith, after being enslaved to Ludo Crash, who was a Red Sith, um, though you know Naga Sadawa was too also, it's a little confusing. Um, but anyway, uh, Sila engineers a genocide against the 57 remaining members of the species, which also kills nearly uh, 20,000 Kashari and domestic animals. Sheila covers up the act the members of the Kashari resistance are aware of it and begin plotting to overthrow the Sith with their leader, Adari. Jumping forward uh, another 10 years to 4975. Uh, finally, 25 years after landing on Kesh, the, the tribe is still stranded and Yaru has accepted their fate. Proclaiming himself Grand Lord, he plans a grand celebration for the 25th anniversary. Adari Meanwhile, has grown the Kashiri resistance into a large group because she resents the Sith for subjugating and murdering her people, but she is still feigning loyalty. Adari's resistance group waits for backup Uvax that never show because they have been taken by Nita Corson, Yaru's daughter. Sila, having waited all this time, finally enacts her plan to kill Yaru and take over the tribe with her son by her now deceased husband, Jiraiad. After an intense duel involving Sila's guards, Yaru's guards, and the Kashiri resistance, Sila is left for dead. Jiraiad is killed by Nita, who had been trained in the dark side, 
and Yaru, suffer, and Yaru suffers lethal injuries. Most of the Kashiri resistance is killed, but Adari and a small group flee to a remote island across Kesha's oceans. It's only about 300 of, of over 1,000 survive. Uh, Nita is named ruler by Yaru's last act and has the Sith temple at the Omen crash site closed off with Sila left to die within it with no aid coming to help her. So she buried her, I guess, uh, stepmom alive. Well, Sith, you know, they're, they're a bit cruel, that one. Yeah, that's that's something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so then the next story... Um, is uh, the calm before the storm, or is this is this a story? Are we looking at a interlude between stories here? No, we're we're just looking at, a, at an interstitial period here. Right. We got about uh, a thousand years, and then the tales of the Jedi kicks off. Gotcha. So in this interlude, um, we will we'll wait have to wait for four thousand uh, BBY for the tales of the Jedi to pick up with its original run, um, but so it's in. Uninterrupted line of the most famous and well-regarded stories from the Old Republic back-to-back for galaxy-spanning wars in 49 years, the core run of Tales of the Jedi, then Knights of the Old Republic, Knights of the Old Republic, to the Sith Lords. I am am terrible at the video game canon here. Um, Oh, that's okay. It's okay. So then there's uh, six years of... The Old Republic, a massively multiplayer online content, ancillary texts, a novel about Revan, uh, KOTOR comics, uh, Old Republic comics and novels. Um, so, yeah, we. This is I mean, that, that. This is I think this is your I think favorite era, era is the era that immediately follows this, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Yes, this is absolutely my favorite period in Star Wars, with, without without question. The the from four thousand to thirty nine fifty one is is easily my favorite part of uh, of all of Star Wars. It is. It is an intense little run of time. Um, so <laughs> yeah. there's no, so there's no no real stories that happen. Um, in the uh, in the nine hundred seventy five years between then, um, but there's um, uh, it's just a rough timeline of events that we know to have happened then. Um, so sometime between uh, four thousand eight hundred and four thousand seven hundred seventy five, the uh, the Ganka massacres occur uh, around four thousand six hundred. The Duin Wogwin, a species called star dragons that could literally fly through the void of space. Um, and then there's Jedi, and then the Jedi Willem Lywin, which, you know, just straight, straight ripping off Game of Thrones here, you know, before it existed. Um, and just super, super that style name. Um, anyway, and uh, there's others who create a Jedi Praxium on Taya 4. Um, Luke put this here to talk about star dragons. Luke, what do you want to say about Star Dragons? Uh, so, what's what's your point? That that is that is why I put this here. What's, what's Star point? Dragons exist. I, I I put it here because because Star Dragons exist and they could be Jedi. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's that's Wait, all. That I'm was bad. a Jedi who was a Star Dragon. I thought was a Jedi. Yeah. Oh no no no! He's he's a Jedi. Wilm Lu, Wilm Lywin. God, that is a Game of Thrones ass name. Wilm Lywin is. 
I, and I have no idea how to pronounce that. Dwin Woquin? I don't know. It, it is a Star Dragon Jedi. Yeah, he... Yeah, and so they can, like, grow to be, like, huge, like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't even remember, like, 10, 10 meters high or, you know, something like that. Some You know, they're just, they can be huge. And so, yeah, I put it in there to talk about them because that's really cool to me. Awesome. <laughs> uh, around 4400 BBY, the Jedi uh, Chama leads a group of knights to Aethys. And they are attacked by Darksiders. Chama falls to the dark side during the battle and goes into self-imposed exile on Harath. Chama is a one-time mentioned character in the saga of Nomi Sunrider. Uh, around at 4300 BBY, Noab Hulis, Chama's former apprentice, convinces his master to end his exile and return to the Order. In 4250... The third great schism occurs when a group of dark Jedi waged war on the Order, fighting on Coruscant before being driven back to the Voltar system. There they attempted to use the Cosmic Turbine, another super weapon, this one built by the Celestials, who were an ancient race of near godlike beings, later retconned to also have been the ones from the Mortis Arc, but that's only in Legends, not in Canon, even though the the ones exist in canon to destroy the Jedi coming to end them. However, the super weapon misfired or backfired or something. Anyway, they all died and caused the Voltar cat- cataclysm and turned the entire system into a nebula. Gotcha. And then at uh, 4225, the Kaikili Reconquista began and ended in the Kaikila system, which had become a hive of scum and villainy for pirates and other criminal elements. Eventually, after some political wrangling, the Republic sent troops under the leadership of Jedi Master Vandar Toker, the Jedi of Yoda's, Yoda's species, um, that Rev- Revan and his uh, crew met on Dantooine in Knights of the Old Republic, and his two Padawans. Yes, they can have two Padawans then. Over months, the uh, Galactic Republic emerged victorious, routing the criminal elements and driving them out, while also leveling the planet of any notable features, though the Jedi did help rebuild it. And in uh, 4100, the uh, Navi computer technology rendered jump beacons mostly obsolete. Um, And here's a cannon alert. Um, jump beacons and hyperspace sextants have both been made canon with the hyperspace sextant Maz Kanada owned um, in the same box where she kept Luke's lightsaber in The Force Awakens, said to be roughly 4,000 years old. Oh. And then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you get Sorry. What? To- <laughs> Sorry, it's just, that's, like, it's just, like, it's such a random thing that was already thrown in there, and, you know, like, that they threw in there, and I, you know, and and, and it's in here, and it just, it just makes me laugh. Like, you know, she she kept that in there with, with the lightsaber of Luke Skywalker, you know, I mean, this is very important. You know, in case, it's very important. In case you go back to a 4,000-year-ago dark age, and mm-hmm. you need to navigate by hyperspace sexton, mm-hmm. uh, of course. Yeah, obviously, like like everyone does. I I guess. I, 
maybe she's really into antiquing. That's that's a kind of person. Um, it's then at uh, 4015 BBY, we get to the Great Droid Revolution, which occurs when a Zerka droid named HK01 subverts it pro- its programming and then does the same for thousands of other droids, turning them against their masters. The uh, Jedi intervened and ended the glorious robot uprising, because, again, Jedi are cops, um, paving the way for the widespread use of ion weapons and ending a nascent droid rights movement in the galaxy. Um, we, we, we wholly support the, the droid revolutions here on this podcast. Um, I do wonder how much uh, the existence of a droid revolution in canon factors into the droid uprising we see in Solo, um, which I think is, uh, to my mind, the standout um, universe world-building part of, of Solo. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know how much it, it would tie back to this um, because this, you know, the Great Droid Revolution was just a throwaway line from uh, from Tales of the Jedi comic. And it was later, you know, expounded upon just just a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I completely agree with, you know, what you said, as you know, as much as we talk about the, the parts of Solo that that pertain to this podcast, you know, the, the things that were made canon, the references in, in Dryden Voss's office and stuff like that. Yeah, the 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 most interesting part of the movie to, to me is is that, you know, the droids, you know, who are obviously sentient, um, some of them in some ways and some of them, you know, fo- seem fully sentient. Um, you know, have acted as, as slaves. And, you know, they, they show this, they show the, they show this uprising that, that she starts or, you know, continues how, you know, however they play it out in the future. So, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. Uh. Exactly. So now moving on to my favorite part of star Wars. Tales of the Jedi, Ulit Keldroma, and the Beast War and the Beast Riders of Onderon. Takes place in 4000 BBY, and this was written in 1993. It's a two-issue comic series by Tom Veitch. In the uh, in the late 80s, Veitch created an idea for the Old Republic and was finally allowed to write it in 1993. This is quite literally the first introduction that we have seen to the, you know, the famous quote that thousands of for thousands of generations, the Jedi Knights were the defenders of peace and justice in the galaxy that Obi-Wan spoke in A New Hope and it, written in ni- written in 1993 and beginning Written in 1993, this was the beginning of Tales of the Jedi, and along with the saga of Nomi Sunrider, introduces nearly every major character that will play a role in the Great Sith War, with the exception of Exar Kun. For more meta info on this, for more meta info on this and the entire Tales of the Jedi series, you can go back and take a listen to Episode Two, where we start discussing the beginning of the Golden Age of the Sith. And so our characters for this, we're going to um, be Ulic Keldroma, an Alderanian Jedi, who's one of the best lightsaber duelists living, one of the strongest Force users ever, written as an analog to 
Luke, the young Force prodigy who did fall to the dark side. Um, but before the story, this is before the story of Anakin was told. Um, after being stripped of the Force, he was still able to become one with the Force after training with the daughter of Nomi Sunrider. There's Kay Kaldroma, Ulick's brother, who is a good Jedi and talented Force user, but much better with droids. Tot Donita, a Twi'lek Jedi who is close friends with both Kay and Ulick, is strong in the Force, can use the Force to direct beasts, is selfless, and suffers much for the Jedi. There's Master Arka Jeth, Arcanian Jedi Master, leader of the Praxium on Arcania, uh, Revere teacher of Ulik K and Tot, the father figure to Ulik, possessed of numerous rare force abilities, including battle meditation and the ability to destroy droids at a mechanical level. And there's a queen, Amamoa, Princess Galia, Mudankira, Orankira, and the spirit of Freedom Mad. It's the whole bunch of wonderful names. Just, just the best. And, you know, before we go any further, I need to stress highly, in addition to my dogs barking in the background, I apologize for that, by the way, uh, that the best of these is Tot Donita. Just, just going to get that out there. Uh, Tot is actually uh, the best Jedi who ever lived and um, has a curved lightsaber hilt. That's the first one we've ever seen in Star Wars. And Count Dooku later ripped him off. So, yeah. The timeline here, 4000 ABY, or 4000 BBY, excuse me. Locations that we are seeing are Arcania, Onderon, and a little bit of Daxun, which is one of the moons of Onderon. Uh, now, background here. Around 4400 BBY, uh, the Force-sensitive human named Frieden Nad arrives on Ossus and begins training to become a Jedi. He becomes Padawan to Master Mata Tremaine, and all the Jedi there are sure that he will become one of the greatest of their order due to his skill with the lightsaber and natural command of the Force. However, Nad is also brash and arrogant, and when his peers are made knights, the Masters determine to test Nad. Tremaine, who was practicing her lightsaber technique elsewhere, told him that the masters could not show him what he needed to do to become a knight. He had to learn himself. This made Nad even more angry, and he drew his lightsaber, which, by the way, is a short, bronze-bladed weapon later discovered during the main quest of Knights of the Old Republic II, the Sith Lords on Duxun before declaring himself a Jedi and that he would become the greatest Jedi to ever live. Tremaine then presumably made that come on bitch hand motion like Morpheus gave to Neo from the Matrix, and the two of them dueled ferociously. Tremaine, who was the head lightsaber instructor on Ossus, took the upper hand before Nad saw his moment and struck down his master, who then became one with the Force. However, it was a ruse. Nad saw that the fight had been a test of his restraint and tried to turn off his lightsaber as he came in for the killing blow, Was, but it was too late. This seemingly pointless death and task angered Nad even further, and he left, and he left Ossus for old Sith space to take revenge upon the Jedi and become, and become a great Sith Lord. The Jedi apparently did not follow him because that's their thing. 
And as you will see, we'll return. We will return to Frieden's story shortly. And so we will have to uh, pick up Frieden Nad's story next time. Um, but stay tuned. There is a lot of excitement in this dense little forty-nine years of history coming up on a People's History of Republic. Thank you all for listening. Um, we will hear of so much. We'll hear more of Frieden Nad. We'll hear of Nomi Sunrider. There will be a dinosaur Jedi. Um, please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTARPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm at Luke is amazing on Twitter. Thank you very much. And may the force be with you.